This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. In the last couple weeks, there have been several moments when I've turned on the radio and immediately felt like I've fallen into a dystopian novel. A guy named Rens Priebus is telling the nation that we will be stopping immigration of Muslims? A white nationalist anti-Semitic guy with a history of domestic violence is going to be a senior counsel for the president? There will be fewer women in the cabinet than there have been since the 1970s? Did I accidentally fall into a time machine or like a Hunger Games situation? Or is this real life? Sadly, yes, this is real life. And if you're anything like me, since Donald Trump was elected on November 8th, you've been fluctuating between determined rage and depressed nihilism. One hour, I'll be all fired up, ready to go, calling my senators and telling them to oppose Trump's horrendous cabinet appointments. The next hour, I'll feel hopeless and overwhelmed and dissolve into tears thinking about all the terribleness that's in the four years ahead and all the terribleness that got us here. Then it passes like a wave. It's okay to feel sad and it's okay to feel angry. But while some moments and hours and days are filled with despair, there are a lot of people who aren't giving up now that Trump's in office. His looming presidency means that a lot of people will have to work harder to survive, to protect their rights, their bodies, and their lives. Let's be right there with them. On today's show, I talked to 10 people about things we can all do right now to help prepare for Trump's presidency. Some of these ideas are about working with elected officials and crafting big policies. But calling your senators, as I've been doing, is only one way to get active. A lot of these ideas are about building strong communities and connections in a grassroots, person-to-person way. This is stuff that everyone can do, even if you don't have a lot of time or money or influence or emotional caretaking ability to spare. It's about working in small ways and big ways and taking time to make sure that we stay safe and we stay loved in Trump's America. Let's go. Idea one, write a letter to your senator. All right, I'm here with one of my favorite people, Zahir Jan Mohammed. Hi. Hey, how's it going, Sarah? Thanks so much. It's an honor to be on the show. Oh, thanks. Um, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So my name is Zahir. I'm a journalist in Portland, a freelance writer. I also teach at The Addict, uh, teach a nonfiction writing class, and I co-founded a podcast called Racist Sandwich. And you personally have, have a strong background on politics. What's yeah. your experience there? So I, came, um, I worked... Uh, for nine years in politics, um, I worked at Amnesty International, where I was one of the directors, um, focused on the Middle East and North Africa. And then I worked in the U.S. Congress for Keith Ellison as a senior foreign policy aide from 2009 to 2011. So Keith Ellison is a Democrat from Minnesota. He's the first African-American from the state of Minnesota elected to the U.S. Congress. He's also the first Muslim elected to the U.S. Congress. And um, I was in his office when the Republicans came to power in the, the Congress in 2010. So when the Tea Party Republicans came in, I was there. What was what was that feeling like? That was like? crazy. That was wild. And, you know, like partly I saw a lot of this um, 
a lot of this nonsense that we see with Trump, I saw the, the seeds of that being planted when the Republicans came in in 2010. So, for example, you know, in 2010, these this new batch of Republicans were um, were shaming Democrats for. I mean, I saw them, you know, making fun of Democrats for being gay. I saw like their not so subtle anti-Semitism. I saw them, you know, shame my boss for being Muslim. Um, I saw them going after, you know, young um, staffers of color. These are people who were elected to office. To yeah, the I mean, I'll give you an example. So, like, I remember in 2011, just before I left, and this is part of the reason why I left. There were Republicans, uh, Republican Congresswoman Sue Myrick, for example, who um, was circulating this like blog that said that these various young Muslim staffers in Congress were spies for like the Muslim Brotherhood. Wow. And, uh, you know, I, um, I'm, I, I was older at the time. And so, like, I got my start in politics long time ago in the 90s where this climate just didn't exist. Uh, but here you have these young kids from Georgetown and Harvard trying to get their, their foot in the door and someone is saying that they're spies because they happen to like hang out in Egypt for a summer, like studying Arabic, you mm -hmm. know, as part of the Harvard exchange program. So, um, but to me, what was really hard about that moment is, look, I recognize that a lot of these these, de these Republicans were, were assholes. It was the Democratic leadership that was really silent at the time. And that really bothered me because we were going to the, a lot of Democratic leadership saying, hey, we're seeing this. We're seeing this new band of, of, of Tea Party Republicans, and they're playing politics in a very different way. And we don't really know how to respond. So, for example, they would like wait outside our office and they would like put their, you know, the iPhone had just really become popular. They'd put their iPhones out and say, what do you think about the death penalty? And we're like, well, I'm, I'm personally against it, for example. And they'd say, well, does that mean you don't support uh, executing Hitler? And I was like, well, come what? on. And then I was like, well. And you're I mean, just like, how, what am, how that, are we supposed to respond? And then what the next question is like, that? yeah, well, how do you say? And then does that mean you, does that mean you agree with Hitler? I was like, whoa, 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 settle down. And like, and like you know, it's. It <laughs> wow. And I didn't know how to deal with that at the time. You know, and I, I still don't know how to deal with that. But like. That used to happen a lot where, you know, the congressman I work for, who might be the next DNC chair, would get like all these sort of gotcha moments. And like the thing about it is that like I'm not saying like Democrats are saints, but like I saw a new level of politics being played The the Republicans never, never checked that. But then the Democrats kind of were sleeping on it mm -hmm. and they didn't really like empower communities. They didn't sort of fight. Um, anti-Semitism to the extent that I think they should have. They didn't really stop these new Tea Party members from vilifying uh, staffers of color. So when we were we when they went after like black staffers in Congress, like I didn't see really people standing up for them, um, and that's kind of a shame, you know. I think what you're pointing out there is really important. Is that um, during this campaign and over the last few years, one thing that's really shown is how Democrats have real problems with reaching out to communities of color Absolutely. with not just reaching out in like a lip service kind of way, but actually pushing for policies that promote racial equity, that, but pushing yeah. for policies that stop racial bias and policing, pushing yeah. for policies, you know, that, that end um, mass incarceration, you know, the, instead of instead of just being able to count on those votes, you know, like Democrats can count on the votes of people of color because in, in a lot of ways it's like, well, it's better than Trump. You know, but but there's been a I think there's been a real real failure there of actually being like, oh, we're going to actually push for something rather than just say like, oh, yeah, of course, embrace all people. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's Democrats have oftentimes taken um, taken for granted a lot of things, not just not just uh, voices of color, but also people who were, you know, denouncing a lot of the misogyny. I mean, I saw this absurd misogyny when I worked in Congress, like just absurd. We're like female applicants were rated on how they look, for example. I mean, it's just absurd. I mean, that's why, like, I'm not a big fan of Hillary Clinton, but when she lost, I took it 
I took it really hard because I saw the absurd amount of misogyny that she had to deal with. I mean, for example, mm-hmm. politicians have these what they're called like briefing books. She had to double her briefing book like to like, you know, a massive amount because like she knows that when she would walk into a meeting, like men are always trying to undercut her. So now for us, I think as people of color, as progressives, as as feminists, I think we have to sort of push back to our Democrats and say, like, we want we're there. There are consequences to you not speaking up now. Not consequences, not like we're going to threaten them like with physical action. No, not at all. But like, for example, go to a member of Congress and say, I really want you to address this issue. And if they don't, write a letter to the editor, write an op-ed in their local newspaper. And I know that when I worked for Keith Ellison, that will get you to notice. Well, I guess that's my question for you is, is how are you thinking about how people can engage in politics better now that we live in a Trump era? Yeah. Um, just doing things like calling my congressman and calling my senator um, and, you know, emailing the mayor. Does that actually do anything? Or am I just like trying to make myself feel better by picking up the phone and calling my Democratic senator and be like, hey, denounce Steve Bannon, please? Well, you know, okay, I'll say this. So so we um, when I worked in Congress, that's kind of when like the iPhone and and all and Twitter was really becoming popular. So our, our, our mail volume just like quadrupled. So now what I would say is like those form letters, and I'm not trying to, oh, I will call them out, like moveon.org, for example, where you click on and you send a letter. Like, be, like, like assign this petition, click here. That I mean, to be honest, like supposing we used to get like maybe 10,000 of those, we count that as one correspondence, right? Wow. But supposing, let's say, you know, I'm sitting, supposing, say, say a person named Alex writes in and says, hey, I'm Alex, I'm, a, I'm your constituent, you know, and... I'm concerned about this issue. I don't like the fact that my friend who's gay is being bullied at school and you specify the name and here's my phone number and here's, we're going to respond if it's something very personal. So that's number one. Number two is I also like when, when someone will follow up too. So for example, if we say, okay, Alex, we're going to respond. And then if we don't respond, then I like you to, I like you to say, well, you know, I'm going to write, I'm going to write about this, you know, because that's going to escalate, because sometimes politicians won't act unless they're pressured. They have to see consequences. That's the way politics works. Politics works when someone, unfortunately, sort of threatens you with some sort of consequence. Now, I feel like everyone is attacking Steve Bannon, who right, rightfully so for being this anti-Semite that might be in the White House as a chief strategist. I personally have been reaching out to Democrats that represent me and say, why am I not seeing you speaking out about this guy? I'm not reaching out to Steve Bannon or to mm-hmm. Trump. Trump's not going to listen to me. But I'm reaching out to my representative and saying, I want to see you on the House floor. I want to see you in your interviews talk about why the White House should not include an anti-Semite like Steve Bannon. So I do believe it makes a big difference. I'm not trying to say protest on the streets don't. I think that's, that's you know, we all have different strategies. But I, I can assure people it makes a difference. What I don't think really works is A, the mass petitions, B, the Twitter stuff, C, like the Facebook stuff. By the Twitter stuff, you just mean saying on Twitter like, oh, I wish Steve Bannon wasn't. I mean, like if you have like a massive following on Twitter, you know, if you're like some sort of celebrity and you tweet like uh, and you tag a member of Congress, yeah, you'll get noticed. Mm-hmm. But unless you have like a really massive following or like a publication or something behind you, they're not going to respond. But I know this. it's a It's a secret that... All of us congressional staffers know every member of Congress has a Google Alerts in their name. 
<laughs> every single one. And, and they I, actually read that? Oh my God, I cannot tell you. We would sit in the back of these like congressional hearings and all of a sudden you'd see this member of Congress and he'd pull out his phone and he'd be like, oh my God, I cannot believe someone in Denver, Colorado is writing about me. And I would be like, yo, that's like a blogger with like two people on his blog. Do you know what I mean? Following but his blog. But they actually read it. That's oh my God, I cannot tell you. They get so irritated. They get so irritated. So like we, like, but Twitter is different, right? Because Twitter is such like, a, it's like drinking out of a fire hose. But if you, you have a blog and you say, I, you know, for example, my member of Congress, I still am a California voter, is Ami Barra in Sacramento. You know, and if I say, where is Congressman Barra talking about this anti-Semitism that's creeping into the next White House? You know, and if I write a post about it, that's going to that's gonna get somewhere. He's going to say, okay, one of my voters is concerned. I'm, I'm somebody who's really active on Twitter and active on Facebook. And I feel like there are great political uses for that. It's a great place to find and build community. It's yeah. It's a great place to share resources, to share ideas, and to share articles. But I think I, what I'm hearing from you is that your activism has to extend beyond Twitter. It has to extend yeah. beyond Facebook. If you're posting a tweet that's shouting about Steve Bannon, yeah, pick up the phone and call your your Democratic representatives or whoever your representatives are, yeah, absolutely. and also shout on the phone about it. <laughs> totally. I mean, I do think, I, <laughs> or or write a blog post about yeah. it and publish it. Totally. I mean, I don't mean to sound like a uh, grouchy old man because I do think Twitter and Facebook are are hugely important. So don't run away from Twitter and Facebook. Like these are such important organizing tools. But in terms of like influencing members of Congress, influencing influencing elected officials, you know, when my boss really wanted to make a strong gesture to one of his supporters, he writes handwritten note. That's really like the way politics works. I mean, I, I think, you know, most elected officials that I know probably write 10 handwritten notes a day wow you know and think about it because like how many like how many like emails do you get a day or tweets to get a day but if someone sends you a handwritten note it kind of just sticks out right and it's like whoa wait a minute and so like it means a lot when you get a handwritten note and so like if you write a handwritten note to your member of congress I guarantee, as long as it's legible i guarantee <laughs> i guarantee you it's going to be read if you have a ch if you're listening and if you have a child and if your child writes a letter to your member of Congress saying, dear congressman, you know, I'm Jewish American. I'm really nervous about this Steve Bannon who's coming in the next White House. You know, please do something. I guarantee not only will that be read, but it'll probably be taken to the House floor and held up. Right. But I've never seen a member of Congress being like, well, oh my God, look what someone's tweeting about me. I just don't see it that way. Right. Because we have Twitter bots. We have these like who knows whose accounts are real. Do you know what I mean? In celebration of the U.S. Postal Service, assuming it's not shut down and gutted <laughs> under Donald Trump. Who knows? Um, before he sets fire to the U.S. Postal Service building, write a letter. But I know that doesn't happen. Well, they, yeah, do. Please do. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Thanks so much for all the work you do here. Thanks. Idea two, support your local abortion fund. You know those people who are somehow both very personable and friendly and, like, the hardest fighting, most determined person you know? Yeah, one of those people is Renee Bracey Sherman. Hi, my name is Renee Bracey Sherman. I'm the Senior Public Affairs Manager at the National Network of Abortion Funds. The National Network of Abortion Funds helps people access an abortion when they want one. So abortion, as you know, is a protected right in this country, thanks to Roe v. Wade, 
But the procedure is more expensive than some people can afford. And as right-wing groups have campaigned to shut down abortion-providing clinics around the country, some people have had to drive hundreds of miles to get abortions or even fly across the country. The National Network of Abortion Funds works with 70 abortion funds around the country to help people deal with those financial and logistical barriers. And Renee, no surprise, is really worried about what will happen to reproductive rights under a Trump-Pence administration. A lot of people have been saying, oh, well, let's give Trump a chance. You know, he made all these grandiose promises. I don't think he's really going to do them. He's going to. Um, He has shown us who he is. Um, and he will, you know, make sure that we do not have access to health care, particularly reproductive health care. Misogyny and white supremacy are living in the White House um, very openly, and we need to be vigilant. You know, he has all of these ideas about how he's going to bring the economy back and bring jobs back, but he's not going to be able to accomplish any of those things. And so the people who supported him are going to want to cash in on what they voted for. And so in order to be able to give them something, he is going to harm the people he can get to, the people who are most marginalized, the people who depend on the government for everything from food to health care. And he's going to hit us hard, um, especially with Mike Pence as his vice president. Mike Pence made his career as a congressman trying to defund Planned Parenthood Mike Pence has thrown two women of color in jail in Indiana for, you know, attempting suicide and her fetus dying and then another woman for um, suspicion of self-inducing an abortion. And so he has no problem harming us for simply choosing an abortion. There is probably an abortion fund in your state or in your city, depending on wherever you're living. Um, Call them. Get involved. Of course, abortion funds need money, so you can always donate. But they also need volunteers for a bunch of different roles, like being a clinic escort who helps people walk safely past the clinics if there are protesters, or people to provide childcare. If you have those skills, you know, show up, be counted, um, do what you can. What I used to do when I got involved in the movement, I did what's called practical support. I used to drive people to their abortion appointments. Um, and meet up with them and give them gas money so they could actually make it to the appointment in their own cars. Um, I used to house people overnight. A lot of folks, if they're having a later abortion or they have to meet the state-mandated multiple appointments, so anywhere from a 24 to 48, so 72-hour waiting period, that actually means that if they are unable to afford a hotel overnight, at the clinic or go back home, a lot of people are sleeping in their cars. And so if you can open up your home to give them a place to rest their head safely, that makes a huge difference in their life. I asked Renee what people could do to protect their own bodies and reproductive rights before Trump gets into office. She's got four words for you. Get your birth control. If you need birth control, make sure you get it. Uh, If you have insurance, Right now, with the Affordable Care Act, uh, birth control and other women's health, reproductive health services are considered preventive services, and so they're available without an additional copay. That may go away because we know that Vice President-elect Pence believes that you know employers should not have to pay for 
birth control, particularly IUDs, because he believes they cause abortions. So we can actually be sure that there will be something that happens to our access around any sort of uh, IUD or emergency contraception, things like that. I took Renee's advice straight away. I've got an appointment for a new IUD booked. Hopefully my Mirena will last through the entire Trump-Pence presidency. On the one hand, I feel like I'm stocking up on supplies for my survivalist uterus bunker. On the other hand, Donald Trump is going to be our president. This is a code red situation. Uh, Really, I would just suggest that everyone talk about abortion, talk about what's happening, talk about the white supremacy that is leaving black and brown people or Muslim friends feeling terrified. This is not some sort of philosophical exercise. This is not a joke. And that is just, that is an injustice in this nation. Uh, I was at Facing Race conference this past weekend and my dear friend Chanel Matthews, who's the communications director of Black Lives Matter said, we will get through this, but what keeps her up at night is that some people will not. Some people will die. And that, that is scary. And yet, to be at that conference and to have received text messages and emails and tweets and all sorts of things from people asking me, okay, where do I sign up? What do I do? That is what gets me up every single day. And I know that we will stand tall, we will stand together, and we will fight back. Idea three, stop fake news. So in this election, there's been a lot of discussion about the role that media played in covering Trump and covering Clinton. But there's this whole other world, a shadowy weirdo world of media that came to light during this election cycle. Fake news. Sites that exist just to publish fake news that they know will get clicks. I called up someone who's been keeping an eye on the rise of fake news over the past year. Sure. Hi, my name is Josh Benton. I'm director of the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard. We basically uh, try and think about what the future of news looks like. Facebook, as, as I'm sure everyone knows, has become a really dominant driver of attention to news and to everything else. And, you know, Facebook has a has an amplification quality, right? People who, who have friends who are in a certain demographic group or with a certain geographic group or a certain ideological group, they tend to uh, share self-reinforcing ideas. This is about making money. Because Facebook drives the online advertising economy, people looking to make a buck figure out how to game that system. Five years ago, they might have been gaming search engine optimization rankings. But now, they're publishing fake articles about how, say, Hillary Clinton is paying anti-Trump protesters. And that drives traffic to their sites and to their advertisers. The spread of conspiracy theories and urban legends has always been a staple of the internet. 
But in this election, fake news seems to have had a real measurable impact. From August until Election Day, fake news articles had more reach on Facebook overall than all real news articles. That means that conspiracy theories and misinformation weren't limited to a fringe group of guys in the basement. They were being shared by millions and millions of people, including, for example, the mayor of Joshua's hometown in Louisiana. The piece I wrote about, I went back and looked at the mayor of my hometown's Facebook page. I don't know him, but um, I knew he was the mayor. And uh, he was sharing things such as uh, Pope Francis had endorsed Donald Trump. That was one story. And South Louisiana is a heavily Catholic area. So that was a, a significant story. Barack Obama had finally confessed that he was born in Kenya. Um, that Hillary Clinton and the FBI agent who was investigating Hillary Clinton was suspiciously murdered, uh, strongly implying that Hillary Clinton was behind that. You know, these these sorts of sorts of things. That Pope Francis story, it was shared over 860,000 times on Facebook. How many people saw that and how did it affect their votes? I asked Joshua if he knew where those stories came from. Yeah, those were all imaginary news sites. I mean, one of the one of the big ones uh, this past cycle was something called the Denver Guardian, which sounds like it would be a newspaper, but it's not a newspaper. That was the the fake FBI agent murdered story. Um, that story got hundreds of thousands of shares. Again, despite being a site that doesn't exist, there are a number of, of these sites that actually actively mix true stories with false stories, so they're a little bit harder to peg. But I do think the the lesson from this past election is that fake news is cheaper to produce than real news. It may has a clearer set of heroes and villains than real news. It is uncomplicated and it connects directly with the emotional core of people. Right? Facebook likes to talk about itself as as an open platform, as a a, a place where people are sharing the information they want to share. And they sometimes use that to sort of step back from any responsibility they might have to, say, limit the flow of fake news. Facebook has taken some efforts since the election to crack down on fake news. But, you know, they're driven by profit. So who knows whether they'll work to redesign the platform. No matter what they do, it's on us in part as news consumers to help stop the spread of fake news. This is about basic media literacy. Before you share something on your social media, click through. Read the article. See where it comes from. See if it's a legitimate news source. And if you see someone else sharing fake news, let them know it's made up. Stop fake news in its tracks. And also just just be aware that there are a lot of people um, on these platforms who are tr- actively trying to fool you. Facebook is, is a mix of really healthy news and really unhealthy news and garbage. Don't be too quick to share things that seem too perfect. Uh, that, that seem like exactly proving that someone is the enemy and someone is, is the good guy. That's a, that's a tough situation to be in. Idea four, diversify your media. Amid all the media post-mortem on this election, people have been analyzing what went wrong with the way news outlets covered the election and the way bigoted and untrue information got traction on social media. But some people have been shouting about those problems long before the election. Carlos Maza is one of those people. Hi, my name is Carlos Maza, and I'm a research fellow at Media Matters for America, which is a progressive media watchdog group based in Washington, D.C. Carlos is one of the first people I saw 
who directly called out the way mainstream news outlets were reporting on Donald Trump and the coded language around his behavior. Way back in May, Carlos put together a video about why we should call Donald Trump what he is, racist and bigoted, not just a, quote, controversial outsider. Donald Trump wants to reinvent himself as a serious candidate now that it's general election time, which is terrifying because he's running one of the most bigoted presidential campaigns in recent history. But news networks have spent the past 10 months treating him like just an unfiltered, tough-talking conservative. And that's doing a lot of damage to the way we talk about bigotry in American politics. It's Donald Trump's tough talk and brash style that took him to the top of the GOP field. Since day one, Trump's campaign has been defined by racial and religious bigotry. There's the little stuff like retweeting white supremacists, pretending to not know who David Duke is, and saying the before he talks about minorities. I can, I'm going to do great with the African-Americans. I think I'm going to do great with the Hispanics. Seriously, who does that? Then there's the bigger... Now that Carlos's worst drugs, fears have come true, I asked him to explain what's been most frustrating about the way reporters covered Donald Trump during this past year. Um, I think some of the most frustrating things about media coverage in America, and I think this is true more broadly, is this really weird, inexplicable in my mind, devotion to the idea that... There are two sides to every story, and we can't really know the truth. We just have to kind of present every side of an issue and hope that people can figure it out. You see that on basically every issue, whether it's climate change or social justice. Anytime there's an objective right, news outlets do their best to avoid saying something is objectively right. Carlos says that a good media diet is full of original reporting and fact-based reporting and less of the stuff that most cable news channels traffic in, the pundit commentary. You should always avoid media that emphasizes commentary and reaction um, rather than original reporting and investigative journalism. And what that does is it lends itself to news that is overly sensationalized, um, relies heavily on partisan commentary that is often divorced from facts, um, and just is, in terms of like nutritional value, is not actually informative or interesting for a viewer to understand. It doesn't lend to a typical civilian being able to make sense of what's right and what's wrong and what's important and what's not important. That means supporting the media outlets that are doing meaningful real work, too, which means, you know, subscribing or donating to support good work. The flashy, sensational news networks have no trouble getting money to support their commentary from advertisers. You can watch CNN for 15 hours straight and get very little useful knowledge about what's happening in the world. Um, and it's just not worth your time after a while. It'll make you more prone to thinking that arguing is news um, when it's not just people arguing. Carlos makes a very important point. Figure out who is writing your news. Who is actually making the media you're consuming and what backgrounds are they bringing to the table? Check and be aware of if the newsroom that you're consuming from is diverse. And I know that newsroom diversity sounds like such a boring feel-good trope. The more diverse a newsroom is, the less chance there's going to be that a report you read has a, has a just glaring blind spot um, or takes bullshit seriously or trusts people that should not be trusted. Any newsroom that does not have diversity as a central priority and defining trait of what good journalism looks like is not worth your time and should be treated with a tremendous amount of suspicion because more likely than not, you're going to get news that is just grossly incomplete um, and leads you to conclusions that are not based on reality but are based in the natural biases of that newsroom. Idea 5. 
get out of your echo chamber. So our media can be very damaging in some ways. It can play into our natural biases. But pop culture can also be a force for good when it comes to bias. We've got the psychology to prove it. To talk about the way pop culture can challenge the stereotypes that we hold in our heads, I called up a woman who has a very long job title. Hi, my name is Rachel Gotzel. I'm the co-founder and director of research at the Perception Institute, a consortium of social psychologists, law professors, of which I'm also one, and advocates focusing on the mind sciences in law, policy, and culture. Rachel Godsell studies implicit bias. That's the psychological term for the way assumptions and stereotypes operate on subconscious levels. You might not even know you feel a certain group of people is, let's say, threatening, for example. But the idea has oozed into your subconscious through your culture, your upbringing, and the media you consume. In a 2016 study called Pop Justice, Pop Culture, Perceptions, and Social Change, Rachel and her co-authors argued that pop culture can be a force for positive good. Movies and TV shows can actually counter the negative stereotypes that deluge us. And what we found was actually very encouraging and not, I guess, completely surprising since we know pop culture can be extraordinarily powerful in creating negative stereotypes. It potentially follows that it can also be effective and helpful at reducing the bias that stems from those stereotypes. Rachel and her team analyzed the results of a bunch of different studies on pop culture and implicit bias. In one of those studies, for example, researchers had people watch clips of a web series about Muslim Americans called Halal in the Family, which is made by comedian Asif Manvi. And their goal was to use kind of Norman Lear-style humor to see if they could reduce anti-Muslim bias. The study looked at how the people who watched the clips of Halal and the Family perceived Muslims, compared to the way people who watched a different comedy series thought of the group. We had to find something that was sort of similarly funny, but didn't involve, frankly, sex or race. And so Everybody Loves Raymond was very helpful. Wait, wait. Everybody Loves Raymond is funny? Well, you know, close enough, close enough. Um, so, but, but the upshot was that people who watched Halal and the Family had lower levels of implicit bias against Muslims than did people who watched this, you know, our control, Everybody Loves Raymond. Now, perhaps you could say it's because Asif Manvi is funnier, uh, but if that's the case, that's okay because the, the humor was effective. So that was a small example, and there was actually another study done, um, Little Mosque on the Prairie in, in Canada that had a similar, a similar result. So there have been a couple of studies like that, not a huge number, but a few studies that have showed that when people watch kind of pop culture, you know, sort of cleverly done, well done, you know, shows, television shows, movies, that it can move their perceptions. The message here in pop culture, diversity works. The most effective way to reduce bias is to have actual human interaction with people who are from different groups than you. Although the human interaction has to be in some ways peer to peer. So obviously, you know, sort of seeing people of different races and ethnicities as you pass them, you know, in a store, that's not going to do anything. There has to be some sort of actual interaction between people. But when we do have interactions with people, um, you know, particularly in positive contexts and when we have some sort of shared goals, um, if, if we're on a PTA together or if we're on a softball team together or, you know, sort of work together in a, in a relatively positive work environment, it's remarkable how much people's bias gets lower. And even more remarkably in some ways, if we have, if, if, you know, if you have relationships with people who are of other races and ethnicities and you tell members of your family, even if they don't have those relationships, 
hearing about your relationships, if you know there are people who are really close to you, that can be enough to reduce their bias. If you, I mean, if you live in a really diverse community, then you know pop culture isn't as likely to be as influential because you're having real life experiences with people. But it, but it still matters, frankly. So if you live somewhere that's not very racially diverse, watching movies and TV shows that center on a group other than your own and portrays them in a positive, humane way can help create real-life positive feelings. Of course, pop culture also gives people an important inroad to talking about subjects around race, gender, and class that are often tough to bring up. You can watch Blackish together and have conversations about the characters and what they're experiencing, and that can be, again, a sort of powerful way for people to see, you know, these families are grappling with some of, some of the same things that I'm grappling with and some things that I don't have to grapple with that I perhaps wouldn't have thought about before. Idea six, fight ignorance. One of the most dangerous and fear-mongering talking points of the Trump campaign was his idea to ban Muslim immigrants. This is discrimination, pure and simple. There's no other word for it, except, of course, the word Islamophobia. While Trump's election lends this kind of religious-based discrimination terrible validity, bigotry toward Muslim Americans is, of course, not new. It's something journalist Sarah Harvard knows all too well. My name is Sarah Harvard. I'm a staff writer at Mike for the Identity section, and I cover religion, race, and where that intersects with politics. Islamophobia didn't start with Donald Trump. It, 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 you know, it really intensified right after 9-11, um, and even existed before then with you know, Orientalism being popular among Americans and American politics and American culture. Um, but right now I'm seeing a huge shift where before, Muslim Americans were afraid of systemic violence, but more so in the sense of surveillance um, and like covert operations or entrapment cases, which were happening a lot within our communities, but not in a very you know large uh, sense. But now our, our priorities are shift to like basic survival. It's not only that we have to worry about systemic violence um, or police brutality, because a lot of our Muslim Americans are you know African American or Hispanic. Um, but now we have to worry whether or not our neighbors are going to attack us. I asked Sarah what she's most worried about on Donald Trump's agenda. I personally don't want to uh, speak on behalf of all Muslim Americans, but from my understanding, a lot of them are terrified because there's a sense of uncertainty, right? With with the Hillary Clinton presidency, you kind of know what to expect. She's not really that great when it comes to civil liberties, um, that you know, on policies that incriminates Muslim Americans, but. We know what to expect. We know how to protect yourself. But with Donald Trump, he's so unexpected. So we're not really sure if um, he's going to go forward with his Muslim ban proposal or his plan to register Muslims. And we're not sure Donald Trump's going to use Rita Giuliani's suggestion of using uh, tagging devices on Muslim Americans to track them. And these things sound so outlandish, you know, as a Muslim American, as someone who's also Japanese American, I would assume that we would learn from our lessons about how horrible it is to put Japanese Americans into internment camps. You know, never would I ever thought that we would talk about registering Muslims into a database or using tagging devices like them on them like they're cattle. But here we are in 2016 and politicians and lawmakers are openly discussing about it. And what's even more scary is that a huge number of Americans or maybe a majority percentage of Americans are in favor of that or are undecided. 
Um, and I think that's what's terrifying. Not only is our lawmakers and the people that we elected to represent us are proposing policies that harm and affect us and alienate us, our neighbors are also supporting it or are staying silent on it. And that's, and that's scary. I asked Sarah Harvard what those of us who don't want to stay silent, who want to support our Muslim friends and neighbors, can do to help stop this kind of bigotry every day. I think the most important thing you can do is to ensure that you're fighting off ignorance. And right now we are in the digital age, we have social media. And the sad thing about that is that false information, conspiracy theories and rumors can spread fast. But the good thing about it is that we also have information in our fingertips and it's it's uh, limitless, essentially. So whenever you see an Islamophobic post or an article that's um, very misleading or has a certain xenophobic, Islamophobic agenda, is to counter that. Idea seven, learn from histories of resistance. No matter what kind of activism you're doing, one person you definitely want to have on your team is a badass lawyer from the American Civil Liberties Union. My name is Chase Strangio. I am a staff attorney at the ACLU's LGBT and HIV project in New York City. Uh, and I also uh, do organizing within the trans community, particularly around access to uh, cash bail and immigration bond for LGBT people in the criminal and immigration enforcement systems. Chase says he's thinking a lot about what it means to organize in the Trump era, where someone who has promised policies that are racist and misogynistic is now in power, stacking the federal government with people who have records of pushing for anti-immigrant laws and applauding homophobic policies. I asked Chase what he's worried about most. One thing that um, that I've been doing a lot of thinking about is, well, how can we uh, provide cash resources to LGBT immigrants who are particularly immigrants who are undocumented, but really any immigrant who's not a naturalized U.S. citizen? Um, and you know, going back to uh, the days where we had um, more more cooperation between local law enforcement and immigration enforcement, sort of the secure communities, the you know, quote unquote, criminal alien program, um, you know, those things have not been enforced as much in, in, in cities like New York. Um, but I think we could see an escalation of that. And so making sure that we're getting to arraignments to people's first court appearances and getting them out of jail, getting them out of police custody as soon as possible. I think that's something that absolutely we have to be worried about and thinking about and really uh, building resources uh you know, for for the the immigrant, you know, the immigration enforcement crisis that that may be coming. One big thing Chase sees on the horizon is that Trump could rescind executive orders that protect LGBT people. During his presidency, Obama signed a number of orders that expand and protect the rights of LGBT people, including a law that bans federal contractors from discrimination, a law that says schools who receive federal funding can't discriminate against transgender students, and a law that protects LGBT people in federally funded housing. In Congress, um, you know, I think we just have to be vigilant. I, you know, I think it wouldn't surprise me if we see a lot of anti-LGBT legislation. Um, we don't have, uh, you know, the the ability in Congress to, to stop a lot of that. We no longer have a supportive president um, that would veto it. So things like potentially a 
a law that it, that looks like North Carolina's HB2 that tries to define uh, sex in a way that deliberately uh, excludes trans people from the definition of sex. Since Republicans will control both the House and Senate, Chase is clear that working to push LGBT-friendly policies at the federal level might not be the best way to go. While he's a lawyer and spends his energy fighting back against unjust laws through the legal system, Chase knows that the legal system isn't the only route for resistance, especially if the Supreme Court and Congress and the president are all against you. Instead, Chase is looking to get resources and support for people who have been on the ground, organizing to stop deportations, homophobia, and transphobia. I think so much of of what needs to happen right now as we gear up for this sort of unknown paradigm is to get resources into the hands of people who are doing the organizing, who have doing the, who have been doing the organizing for a long time. Um, you know, communities of color have built survival and resistance strategies, um, and they are res- you know have resiliently been fighting you know deportations under the Obama administration. Uh, trans communities of color have been surviving in the face of state-sponsored violence for a very long time. So there, there are organizations like Southerners on New Ground, um, like the Trans Latina Coalitions, the um, Transgender Variant. Um, an Intersex Justice Project, which is Miss Major's organization in Oakland, those are the organizations that need our, our money and resources because they're doing the survival work and have been for a long time. You know, we're going to be out there litigating and fighting to hold back uh, the very, the repressive laws that we may see. But but again, we got to get resources in the hands of, of the folks on the ground. While Trump feels like a huge shock, the beginning of a new, more terrible era in our history, in a lot of ways, this isn't new at all. The support for Trump has deep roots in America's history of white supremacy and xenophobia. But for as long as there have been people like Trump around, there have been people resisting bigotry, too. You know, I think another thing that we should be doing is is reading our histories and understanding our legacies of resistance, um, because, you know, that we don't learn um, from our history in this country as a general matter. Um, and there's so much to learn. There's so much to engage with. And so I'm hoping that, you know, one thing I'm trying to do is connect with the elders in the trans community in the coming weeks and months, um, figure out how to um, build support networks, uh, how to use the law in more imaginative ways, how to lose forward. You know, in the LGBT movement, we're used to winning because we file cases like marriage equality cases um, that that you know that that really don't challenge the status quo in a lot of ways um, and so we have to think about ways that we can file cases even if we know we're going to lose them but that give people the sense that they have a community of lawyers on their side that we're going to tell a story of survival we're going to fight back against what we think are unjust and unconstitutional laws so that's that i think that's the plan for now um and and just to to never to never tire in our insistence that you know white supremacy is both the foundation of our country and completely unacceptable um and we have uh, obligations particularly as white lawyers which i am uh, to disrupt that. And so that is really, I think, our mandate moving forward um, and to put our our bodies and our imagination and our love on the line to uh, to really keep the most vulnerable members of our community alive in the face of whatever might happen next.
idea eight, offer your skills. The day after the election, a hashtag popped up on Twitter, hashtag translawhelp. It's a place to share resources, like legal help, for transgender people who want to get their paperwork updated before Donald Trump's inauguration. We have those federal protections right now that make it possible for transgender people to update their passports and other identity documents to match their gender identity. But that might go away under Trump, and the bureaucracy around this right now is intimidating. States vary wildly on how easy it is for trans people to update their gender identity. Many people need a lawyer, or at least a guide, to wade through this. So that was the genesis of Trans Law Help. Hello, I'm Riley at DTWPS on Twitter. Um, I am a software engineer and small-time game developer and the creator of the hashtag TransLawHelp. I started the hashtag on Wednesday, so the day after the election. Um, my first tweet is clocked at about 1.10 p.m. that day. Um, and I was really like feeling depressed because of the turnout um, of the election. And I noticed somebody on my Twitter saying, well, trans people, if you want to get those docs, you should probably do it now because can't guarantee it's going to be allowed next year. And I was like remembering that I hadn't um, done my docs yet. And I'd been like putting them off because I'm like, oh, you'll get there. You have plenty of time. And um, it seems like time could be up. Um, and some lawyers reached out to me to help me. And so I was like, well, this I'm sure other trans people would really love, you know, that opportunity um, and that resource. And thus Trans Law Help was born. Within days and with help from several friends, Trans Law Help became a standalone website, translawhelp.org with a directory of lawyers and paralegals and notaries in states around the country who are pitching in their skills to help transgender folks. So the first thing I want to mention is the passport, um, primarily because a, because a passport's federal. It's, it's one, the first thing that can be cut off. <laughs> and um, two, it's also the easiest thing to get right now. Um, if you have other documents prepared already, um, or if you have an old passport, the passport is the easiest thing to change. Other documents would be birth certificate, um, driver's license, social security card. The site also has a way to donate to trans people who can't afford the paperwork fees. We had so many people who are like, well, I really want to get my docs changed, but I don't have a dollar in my pocket to do so. Doc changes can cost a lot of money. Um, some people need upwards of $550. That's that's the largest number I saw personally, $550. Um, to get all the things changed. And then people also, sometimes they live in rural areas where they can't get to notaries or anything like that. They need to order birth certificates from other states. I mean, there's a lot of things that really go into changing every single one of your documents. Um, and you need money to do that. The Trump presidency is grim, and I hate the word inspiring. It's overused and it's tacky, but it really is inspiring to see so many people offering their skills in any way they can through legal help, through web design, through social media mastery, to help out those who are vulnerable. The core of Donald Trump's campaign was one huge promise. Build a wall. Well, now that he's coming into office, the huge question is, how will deportation work in the Trump era? How many families will be broken up? How many refugees will be turned away? 
And what can those of us who know immigrants are good for America do to help immigrant communities in this scary time? Hi, I'm Elisa Wellick, and I'm the executive director of an organization called the Immigrant Defense Project. And we fight for justice for immigrants, both in the immigration and criminal justice system. We were actually founded to fight back against the sort of mass detention and deportation of immigrants who've had contact with the criminal justice system. Now, just to get this straight, Trump's tough on immigrants rhetoric is a little weird because the Obama administration has actually deported more people than any other president. So the last eight years have been tough for immigrants in the United States. But the next four years, well, Alyssa is worried it'll be even worse. We just expect this, the Trump administration to take it to a whole new level Um, So I think a lot of us are thinking right now, you know, what can we try to do with the Obama administration um, before that administration is over to try to protect as many people as we can? Um, And then especially what can we do at a city and state level um, to ensure that folks are protected um, and that, you know, once the Trump administration comes in, you know, that we know their plans are to deport you know, millions of people and probably, you know, with very little due process. So to have kind of defenses in place to stand up against that. You know, I think what's going to happen is, you know, we're just going to have to be incredibly defensive at the federal level. Um, We know that Chris Kobach, who, you know, designed the SB 1070 law in Arizona, is either going to be in the Trump administration or is one of the main advisors on immigration. And so, we know it's going to be very bad. And, you know, what Trump has said is that, you know, he's going to try to deport three million people quickly. One idea that's been getting a lot of traction is establishing sanctuary cities. This is an idea that started in the 1980s, actually. U.S. religious institutions started providing sanctuary to undocumented immigrants fleeing violence in El Salvador and Guatemala, refugees who couldn't get asylum in the U.S. thanks to Cold War politics. Now, entire cities are declaring themselves sanctuary sites. These are cities where the local government has said they won't report people's immigration status to federal authorities. There's a really strong movement that's um, been happening, uh, you know, for now many years, um, creating sanctuary cities. Um, And so that's something that local governments can do. And I think a lot of politicians are kind of interested in, in taking steps there, but they need advocates to push on it. Since Trump's election, officials in at least 10 major cities have reaffirmed their commitment to upholding their sanctuary policies, including San Francisco, Oakland, New York, Chicago, and D.C. Jeff Sessions, Trump's repugnant pick for attorney general, has already said that sanctuary cities should face federal prosecution. But the cities are holding strong. Idea 10, talk about racism. The role race played in the election of Trump is undeniable. According to exit polls, a majority of white men voted for Trump, as did a majority of white women. The need to talk with white people about racism is clear. But having those conversations is often, at best, awkward and, at worst, dangerous. That's where showing up for racial justice comes in. Hi, my name is Heather Kronk. I am one of the co-directors of Showing Up for Racial Justice, also known as Surge. And we are obsessed with obsessing white folks to organize around racial justice. 
Personally, I've been thinking a lot about how white people like me can have better and more effective conversations with other white people about racism. I asked Heather for advice on talking about topics like Black Lives Matter and racial inequity and how Donald Trump is hiring white supremacists. Yeah, I mean, we get that question a lot. And that's the thing that I think a lot of folks, a lot of white folks get hung up on um, is, you know, not only feeling uncomfortable with having that conversation, but also feeling like they have to get it right, like they have to say all the right things. Um, And that's actually no way to have a real authentic uh, honest conversation with folks, right? Like you're going to say the wrong things and you're going to feel uncomfortable. Um, and, and we encourage folks to just do it anyway. Right. Um, there are, you know, many holidays coming up. Um, folks, um, are, are likely going to be spending time with friends, family, biological family, adopted family. And this is a great opportunity to just really lean in to those conversations. Showing up for racial justice is working on some talking points and primers on how to have these conversations that hopefully they'll be publishing in late November. But I asked Heather to walk me through what she's learned. She says the first big thing, after not avoiding the conversation itself, is to ask questions about what motivated people to vote for Trump. So then you can talk about those policies. One of the reasons why folks voted, white folks voted for Trump is because they thought that he was going to do better for them, uh, especially around uh, the economy. Um, I think there is a lot of fear out there. And what we need to do as, you know, kind of conscious white folks is to pull that apart and to say, you know, well, actually, Donald Trump is going to be, you know, far worse for most folks, most white folks and and all, all, basically all people of color Um because he actually doesn't believe in shared resources. He doesn't believe in cooperative economics. He doesn't believe in everyone having a pathway to success and stability and, and the ability to thrive. He believes in doing exactly what he's done over decades of work, which is to amass wealth himself. That's not good for anyone um, except for a, a handful of, of folks at the top. I'm so angry and so upset that part of me just wants to say, oh, you voted for Trump, you're racist and misogynistic, goodbye. I don't want to work on understanding where they're coming from. I don't want to seem like I'm okay with voting for Trump. But then the other part of me is like, no, it's on people like me who will be safest under Trump to have the kind of conversations that can change minds. The strategy of just saying, I'm not talking to you. Goodbye. I'm going to outvote you. That didn't work. So one way forward is having those conversations that personally I find infuriating. There's a little bit of a piece of you know, folks having white folks specifically having a responsibility around this, right? Um, but I also I also don't think that guilt works in organizing. Um, strategy works in organizing. And what we know doesn't work is avoiding conversations about race, avoiding conversations about class, about gender, about how all of those things intersect. Um, you know, but but let's create space for folks to be able to air. Here's why I'm afraid. And when people air, here's why I'm afraid then we have an opportunity to dispel that. If we don't, if we pretend that that, that fear doesn't exist, if we pretend that you know, folks who are feeling economically disenfranchised or who are feeling like um, you know, folks are gonna come in and take all of their stuff and take their livelihood, you know, we, it's, it does us no good to pretend like that doesn't exist. Let's actually air it um, and, and try to pull that apart. Showing up for racial justice is specifically focused on trying to get white people to talk to other white people about race. White people, we often think of ourselves as not part of a racial group. We're the norm and everyone else is other. It's not on everyone to have this kind of conversation. But for people who can, 
It's on us to help make change. Not all white folks are experiencing this election in the same way, right? So um, I identify as queer. I come out of LGBTQ organizing. And for a lot of queer folks, especially a lot of trans folks, even if you're white, um, especially if you're queer and trans and poor, um, you know, you're experiencing this election and experiencing, um, you know, having these kinds of conversations with friends and family in different ways. And so I would never say to folks, you have to have this conversation. For a lot of folks, that isn't safe for a whole lot of different reasons. Um, but I do think that in the ways that we are able and in the ways that we are able to push ourselves, I think it is important to have these conversations while always, of course, making sure that we're doing that um, in ways that are sustainable, that are safe for ourselves, um, that allow us to have a second conversation and a third conversation. Friends, this is dark stuff. There's no two ways about it. These are hard times. But it's truly inspiring to know the other people who are on our team. We're here to watch out for each other. And although we might all occasionally be collapsing into tears and taking a night off for self-care and friend time and delicious sandwiches, make no mistake, we are here and we're not going anywhere. We've got one president and there's 318.9 million of us. That's 318.9 million chances for resistance. The groups featured on this podcast are all worth your support. They're your source for getting involved and for pitching in. We have links to every one of the organizations featured on this show from the podcast page at bitchmedia.org. But thank you so much in order to Zahir John Mohammed, Renee Bracy Sherman, Joshua Benton, Carlos Maza, Rachel Godsell, Sarah Harvard, Chase Strangio, Riley, Alyssa Wellick, and Heather Cronk. It was an honor to talk to all of you. This show is transcribed by Cheryl Green of Storyminders. The transcripts are posted on the podcast page at bitchmedia.org. We're proud to make propaganda accessible to people who are deaf or hard of hearing. This week's listener note gets really real. <laughs> Our listener note this week comes from Twitter user at IamTPalmer, who tweeted at us about last week's Backtalk episode. They wrote, heartbreaking episode of Bitch Media's Backtalk. Amy Adoisey, that's Amy Lamb, you made me cry at work. Much love and strength. Your reminder that crying is good and okay. We are here for you. Cry hard, work hard. That's my motto. See you soon. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. 
Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening.